It's nice to be in a place where you can look out and see people you love. Somebody on the internet once said that friendship is the suspension on the car ride of life. So thank you to so many of you from the spiritual splash zone all the way up to the do your homework seats who have over the course of the past several years blessed my life in numerous ways. Have you ever really look forward to something in your life? Maybe it was a first date, maybe it was a specific birthday, maybe it was graduation. And then the day comes and it turns out to be hot garbage. You ever had this happen to you? That's what the internet is for. And so Reddit has many boards about just this type of thing. One person wrote, during my 16th birthday, I had whooping cough. My parents still wanted to have a party though, but obviously I couldn't be around. So I stayed in the basement as my family had a party upstairs. <laughs> there was a slat in our basement door and so they pushed a piece of cake through <laughs> so I could have some. Master has given Dobby a cake, right? <laughs> Another person wrote, when I was seven, I went to the table to blow out my candles and my brother tried slamming my face into my cake, but missed the cake and literally just slammed my face against the table. <laughs> I started crying. I got blood all over my cake. <laughs> this happened again when I was nine. What do you do when you've been looking forward to something for what feels like forever, and then whatever it is you've been waiting for arrives and turns out to be, frankly, not all that great? I think that might be where we pick up in Mark chapter 4. Some of you uh, know Mark chapter 4 because it contains some famous parables from Jesus. The one we're going to be looking at is sort of the explanation of the parable of the sower and then the parable of the mustard seed. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, or scroll on your phone. This will be a good use of your phone during chapel to look at the Bible. Uh, Mark chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13. Jesus has just uh, laid out a little bit of a parable, uh, as he tends to do with his disciples. He's talked about soil and seed. He's talked about a sower who plants seed uh, on rocky soil, on soil filled with thorns, on soil on a path, and then finally on good soil. And so we're going to pick up in verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then are you going to understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are just like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. And others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last just a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life or the deceitfulness of wealth or the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word and accept it and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Skip down to verse 30 with me. 
Again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God's like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, and yet when it's planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that even the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. That's so frustrating. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So Jesus is approaching this lakeshore full of people that are pretty familiar with what kingdoms look like. These are people who have Roman soldiers patrolling their streets. Some of their relatives have been bought out and have sold them out and become tax collectors. They're constantly under the thumb of Roman oppression and they're not getting paid the wages that they should and yet they're living in this tension that while things are not presently as God has promised, there's a Messiah that's going to come and finally end all this suffering. And so there's this crowd on the lakeshore this day full of some people who maybe heard that listening to Jesus' speech got you a free lunch. We don't know how many times he fed the 5,000, right? So some pe- you just see this little kid bringing his lunchbox, hoping, you know, just hoping. Some people, probably because they were really bored and had nothing better to do on a Saturday, all of them under the yoke of Roman oppression, worn down by the grind of the in and out of being treated as less than human on a day-to-day basis, wondering in the back of their head, if not at the front of their mouth, what force is powerful enough to finally put down the most powerful empire in the world? This isn't what God has promised. What force can finally take down Rome so that our day-to-day existence isn't defined by being treated as less than human, but being God's covenant people that have a kingdom of our own. What force is finally powerful enough to do that? And so you can imagine their frustration when they're listening for what the kingdom of God will be like, and Jesus says, you know what force is powerful enough to take down the entire Roman Empire? A shrub. No, wait, a seed. Don't get me wrong, I have nothing against bushes. I do love to garden. There are all kinds of bushes in the world. There are big bushes. There are uh, sculpted bushes. Uh, There are prickly bushes. And uh, there are even George bushes. (laughs) See? There, there There were presidents before Twitter was invented. What a simple time it was to be alive. But none of these bushes, none of them, were powerful enough to take down the entire Roman Empire. You know, can you imagine how disappointing it would be to go from imagining the kingdom of God as a military power or a leader who would call fire down and just smite the legions of soldiers that were patrolling your street, to finding out that the closest thing that Jesus, who seems like what it would be like when God is in charge, right? He seems to know some stuff about God. This person that seems to know the most about God comes and says, the closest thing I can find to compare the kingdom of God to is a shrub. Can you imagine the frustration of this? The smallest seed that Jesus or his his hearers would ever think about, a seed you could plant and then return to the field the next day and step over without even realizing it. I can almost hear a few of the members of the crowd lean over to their neighbors and say, what's the point of the kingdom of God if even when it's growing, you wouldn't even know it's there? 
I've heard that thought echoed in my own head because I grew up in church and I heard people say things like, this is such a foretaste of the kingdom or this is a taste of what it will be like when the kingdom of God arrives. And over the years that I heard that, I slowly started to notice that most of the time when people said that, they said it when the fog machine was rolling or when worship was really well performed. And so gradually, over the course of my life in church, I started to think of the kingdom of God primarily as something relegated to special moments, to spiritual retreat, to cathedrals or time and devotions or youth group or camps or whatever it was. It was something that was removed from the everyday humdrum materials of my everyday life. Places where doing the things that God called me to do seemed easy or effortless. Places where when the creeds were proclaimed and the, and the sermons were preached, I effortlessly nodded my head and got chills down my spine and was elevated out of the humdrum stuff of my everyday life into a moment where everything God said I could agree with. And so I see Jesus speaking to a crowd of people who are looking for their experience of the kingdom of God to appear big and powerful and shiny and important, people who want to look at the kingdom of God and know they've been in the presence of it, to be wowed or blown away, to have one encounter with God that makes everything else in their life different. And I look at that crowd on the lake shore and I see my face. Do you see your face too? When you think of the kingdom of God, does your mind wander toward your studies and your job and your neighbors and your spending habits and the way you treat and even think about the poor? Does your definition of the kingdom of God propel you to look in the dirt of your own life, the places where you blaze trails every day on this campus? Or have you, somewhere along the line, whether you meant to or not, come to believe as I did that the kingdom of God is only present in things that make noise. Thank God that's not true. Because day by day and moment by moment, you and I live our lives on a pretty ordinary scale, don't we? We make decisions as big as who we're going to spend our life with, whether our friends or potentially a spouse. We make decisions as small as how often or even whether or not we're going to brush our teeth. I lived in South Hall. I know this is an, an actual option that some people choose not to exercise. <laughs> some of these decisions, I think, are driven by fear, aren't they? What the people who are most important to us will say. Some of those decisions are driven by the desire to live a meaningful life, a life that gains skills and character that can contribute good and noble and holy and beautiful things to the world. But no matter what our decisions are driven by, weaving its way underneath the surface of every decision we have to make is an invitation from God to become a certain type of person, to become good soil, not to become the kind of person who just lives their life by taking everyone's opinions around them and adding them up and averaging them out. Notice the good soil is good precisely because it can resist things that are not from God enough to allow the gospel to grow, right? The soil that lets everything in is the thorny soil 
because thorns always grow the fastest. We're not called to become that kind of person. We're not called to become the kind of person who closes our mind to people who disagree with us so that all we, all we do is live our way. That's the seed on the path. When the gospel is sown and it's something different than the soil is already producing, the soil just doesn't accept it and it gets carried away by the birds. That's not the kind of person God's called us to be either. Not the kind of person that accepts the gospel quickly up to a point when it conflicts with our deeply held beliefs so that we only emphasize parts of the gospel that affirm what our family of origin has taught, what our political party will allow, or things about to help us feel good without affecting the habits and the structures and the dispositions of our life. That's rocky soil. The gospel sinks in up to a point, grows up quick, gets hit with a little sun, and it's dead. And so I wonder, how in the world do we become the kind of people that God's called us to be? We'll turn back to Mark chapter 4. The text says, Others, like seed sown on good soil... Pay attention to this. One, hear the word. And two, accept it. And because of that, over time, slowly produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 times what was sown. I think every day, um, most of us wake up and wonder if we're enough, you know. We wonder if we're smart enough. We wonder if we have achieved enough. We wonder if we're doing enough for God. And we measure ourselves against the highlight reel of our peers and our friends so that we feel like someone else is constantly a better version of us. And so I wondered a long time when I was in this place and even now that I'm out of it, what does it mean to have a scorecard for my life that matches what God would think is successful. How do you even measure that? And I read this passage and I see that Jesus actually has a pretty simple scorecard. He says the best thing you can be is dirt. The best thing you can be is the kind of soil that one hears the word and accepts it. It seems like kind of a silly way, doesn't it, to push back against the powers of the world, but I, there is only one thing, I think, that a culture obsessed with its own power cannot tolerate. And that's a person who's obsessed with listening to someone else and giving their power away. Instead of garnering accomplishments and badges and small trips of the ego that make us feel better, it's focusing less, actually, on doing big things for God and focusing more on doing small things that, because they're from God, take on a life of their own. So how do you build the kingdom? How in the world would you do that? Well, you could make a meal for a foster family who's going through a transition. You could spend some time with someone who is poor, not to just mentor them, but to actually learn and be a friend. You could teach someone who you're mentoring what it means to listen well enough to someone else that you can share the gospel deeply. 
not just the pre-memorized plan of salvation, but the gospel that's actually good news for them. People are hungry for good news, just not the way we've been telling it. You could learn the names of the people who clean the buildings that you enjoy and learn their story. These are the things that God invites us to do, things that without calling much attention to themselves, without posting themselves on social media, cultivate the kind of growth that lasts. Some of my earliest experience with plants uh, come from my time with my grandfather. He uh, grew up in a farming community and now I've moved to a farming community and I still know nothing about plants. But my grandfather was a farmer and so I grew up um, playing catch with him in front of his yard. He moved into town and he had this beautiful big lamp post out in the front of his yard, very Chronicles of Narnia, very Speum. And so there was this ivy that grew up huge around this thing. And I remember uh, playing catch with my grandfather in the front yard and I'd lose a tennis ball and I literally hunted for 45 minutes to find this tennis ball in this ivy. It was huge. And I remember playing with my grandfather one day and he looked at me and he said, you know, Ethan, half of that ivy is going to be dead by summer. I was homeschooled. This ivy was another living thing I came into contact with. It was a friend of mine. I liked it a lot. I was very sad about the prospect of my good friend Ivy dying. And so I said, it can't be. Look at the leaves. They're beautiful. And he looks at me and he says, you know, sometimes plants with the prettiest leaves are actually dying underneath. That's not just true of plants, is it? I think that's true of people. I think one of the greatest obstacles of becoming the kind of people God wants us to be is pretending that we're that kind of person already. We pretend we agree with loving the poor, but we don't have any friends who are poor. We act like forgiveness for our enemies is what we believe, but we don't do anything kind for anyone who hurts us. We nod our heads at the deep need for unity and then gossip about someone in our friend group or our faculty meeting right when they leave the room. We think we're kingdom first people, but we can't imagine giving more than an hour or two of our free times to things like serving in the community or learning about the suffering our friend is having. We say things like, we're too busy, but Netflix says otherwise. We say things like, I don't have enough expendable income, but look at your shoes, they're really nice. You have it. And so I think that's actually the greatest challenge for us in a Christian community, isn't it? To stop pretending we're good soil when actually over time we didn't mean to. It didn't make us a bad person. But we've become hardened, rocky, and full of thorns. Jesus seemed to remind his followers, and by extension, us today, that the point isn't to be soil that looks good, but to be soil that is good. And that often requires admitting when the rocks and thorns have gotten in. Later that same summer at my grandparents' house, sure enough, half of that ivy died, so I lost half of a friend. And so uh, my grandfather at that same summer planted some sprigs of ivy. I never saw them except when I crushed them playing catch, threw a frisbee at them, and then almost plucked them when I was weeding around this lamppost. But several years later, I, I go back to my grandfather's house every year, and that ivy, that, those little sprigs have grown up into huge things. I went back this last year, just last month, 
And the ivy is actually bigger than ever before. And I told my grandfather, you remember when you planted those sprigs? He said, yeah, some of the most durable growth you'll ever see starts out really small. I think that's true of people too. And so I wonder this morning if there are people in the room here that God has been inviting over and over to small growth at last. I imagine there are some of us here uh, who have said yes quietly in a hidden way that's never made it on social media to the things that God has invited us to. And so the call this morning would be to persist in that kind of faithfulness in mustard seed sides acts of faithfulness that lean into the kind of person that God's called you to be even if they don't call attention to themselves. Jesus seems to say in this parable that only one in four people, if you look at the average of the soil, only one in four will actually deeply accept the kind of growth that God cares about. But it seems as if he's not actually discouraged by that because he says that that one person who deeply accepts it will multiply 30 at least, 60 or 100 times just by accepting that little seed. So I imagine some of us have already said yes and whether you see the fruit or not, the roots are starting to grow. I imagine though that there are a lot of us here that in whom God has been sowing seed over and over and over again. You know what he's inviting you to do. It's small and it's quiet and it will require admitting that you're not good soil already. So this morning as you came in, I think you got a little handout that has numbers one, two, three on it. And so the call this morning is to respond to God's invitation by writing down what are just one to three things in the coming week just that are little mustard seed sides acts of faithfulness that don't seem big, but that because they're from God will take on a life of their own. This isn't the kind of message you can respond to, I don't think, by just in the room, I guess, right? This is the kind of message that we'll only see the results of just like a crop 10, 15 years later or at least a couple growing seasons. And so if you want some prayer from people that can surround you, I didn't prep the chaplains for this, but chaplains will come and pray and friends will come and pray if you want some space to process this. But I think the call and invitation for all of us is to lean into becoming the kind of people God wants us to be by doing those small things. So we're going to have a pause for reflection and then Dr. Bray will come up in a minute. But this space is yours to write as you need and then we'll pray. I'll pray now too. God, we thank you that you push back against the invitation of the world by inviting us not to see something that's overtly powerful, but to see a power that weaves under the surface, that provides and animates and gives life quieter than we might expect. At first, that seems like bad news, I think, to most of us, but then we realize that it actually harmonizes pretty well with the invitation you extend to us through our everyday life. And so, God, give us hearts that are quick to respond. Give us paces of life that help us develop the habit and disposition of listening. And give us support from community around us that nourishes the kind of thing that you care about. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. This time is yours.